Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Thanks. So why don't you guys open your Bibles, if you would, real quick, to the book of Matthew, which was the chapter that we had just read, Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to take a look at some elements of that passage, again, just as we are reminded. Uh, what we've been doing for the past several weeks is looking at a variety of themes that are not just simply consistent with this time of year, reminding ourselves that Jesus is coming to this world, what God was up to in sending Jesus, um, but also themes that kind of run throughout the entire Bible that remind us really of God's main purposes throughout creation, throughout history, what God's up to in this world, in other words. And at the end of the day, how you and I play a part of that, like how God invites us to be part of what he's up to in this world. So what I want to do today is we're going to look at the subject of love, because I think love plays into this passage. We'll look at how in just a moment. But what I want to do is we've done in the past several weeks is as we've looked at some of these themes and ideas is to really consider this word love. We'll look at a little uh, video from our friends at the Bible Project on this particular word, and then we'll just jump right into the teaching here this morning. So these guys should have the video all cute and ready to go. Love. You know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day, it was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachma. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. 
Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them expecting more nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. So in the story that we just read, um, that was read to us uh, about the typically known as the wise men. Um, what I want to do is I want to look at a couple elements of this story that I think are, are really kind of profound. Um, I want to look at, first of all, just the subject of like, who are these wise men? Because I think if you were to be someone that was following along with the story of God's people, and particularly reading the book of Matthew, um, you would be struck, I think, by this question, like, who are these wise men? Where do they come from? Some of um, the tradition, and there's all sorts of myth that has kind of circulated around the idea of these people, uh, like kings, three kings. Um, there's no uh, biblical, like, storyline that kind of plays into at all that these are actually kings. The other thing we kind of looked at even last week was that if you have a manger scene, you know, underneath your tree or on your mantle or within your house somewhere, and you have these three wise men or three kings, or if you want to describe them as that, in there, that's like theologically inaccurate. Because what we're actually told in the Bible is that these guys did not come until at least a couple of years later, uh, is at, at least after when Jesus was born. So again, if you want to be theologically accurate, you can take the three people, three wise men, throw them over into your neighbor's backyard. Make sure you ask mom and dad first if you're going to do that. And then that's a little bit more in line with how the Bible story tells us this. But I want to look at really kind of the subject of who these guys are, but then dovetail all of this into the larger context of love and how that all plays into this important theme. So again, 
the question I think if you were to be reading this in the first century was, who are these people? And where do they come from? Um, which raises the question, what does mag mag you know, magicians, whoever these guys are, even mean wise men? So take a look at a couple things in your Bible. So, for example, again, I'll just read this to you. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? So, for one, we don't know the names of who these people are. We have no idea who they are. We really don't even know the number of them because the Bible story doesn't even tell us how many of these wise men there are. Again, so like I said, there's all these myths that have kind of circulated around these important characters of the Bible story. The other thing that's kind of a little bit of interesting by way of trivia, this is the only account of these wise men is in the Gospel of Matthew. The other uh, New Testament accounts are just kind of silent. We don't know anything about these guys with the exception of what Matthew tells us about these guys. But the actual word that's used there in the Greek is the word magi, M-A-G-I. So if you were to take a look at this particular nice little image right here, we're told that they bring three gifts in the story, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Again, some of us, you might be familiar with that. Um, if you have no idea what frankincense and frankincense and myrrh are, um, if you are into essential oils, you for sure already know what these are. So these were like essential oils before essential oils became popular. So these magi, they bring this. Now, magi basically comes from a Greek word, which means magician. Now, again, to understand a little bit about who these guys are, we're told that these guys probably came from the, well, we know they came from the East, but where from the East? That's kind of a big question that scholars, theologians, people who study the Bible have tried to figure out. A lot of people believe that they came from the region of Persia. So we're talking hundreds, if not a couple thousand miles away. Um, and not only that, they came following a star. Again, like I said, if you were reading this for the first time, you'd be kind of shocked by this. You'd be like, who are these guys? They're not Jewish. They're not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't follow the God of the Bible. Who in the world are these guys? And why are they in this story? Um, that's, I think, a, an interesting question to really kind of ponder and consider. What we're told about these guys is that their religion was probably somehow linked to ancient versions of what's commonly known as Zoroastrianism. All right, if you're ever familiar with that, that was the ancient um, religion prior to Islam throughout the entire Persian world, Zoroastrianism. So some believe that this is where and what these guys were. They were kind of the equivalent of an ancient version of astronomers or astrologers um, and or ancient scientists. But again, what we know so far about these guys is, one, they're not Jewish. Two, they have no direct connection to the story of the Bible. Three, they would have been very far from God. Four, they would have been, you know, observers of the stars. And yet they get brought into the story of Jesus, which to me, what's so fascinating about this is this is exactly what God is always doing in the world. For one, things that are totally unexpected. We see God oftentimes doing things that we don't necessarily expect to play according to his plan, but he does it nonetheless. And God brings these people that normally would not have any particular connection to the storyline of the Bible into the storyline. If you really want to push the idea even further, you can ask the question, how in the world did you get brought into the story of God? Like all of this is what I want you to understand is an act of grace. Another word to think about this is love. This is really the story of the entire Bible, that we have a God 
that actually, according to John 3.16, so loved the world that he gives his only begotten son. That this is what God was up to in this world. In fact, the story of this begins on Genesis chapter 1, the page 1 of the Bible, where God creates human beings. Again, Adam and Eve, by the way, they weren't Jewish. They were, they were just, they were people, people that God created. And we don't even get into the idea of Jewish identity until maybe chapter 12 or so of the Old Testament, of the book of Genesis. That what we see first and foremost, God creates human beings to love him, to be known by God, to be in relationship with God, to enjoy life being just simply created to know God. And what's happened, obviously, in page three of the Bible is we see that human beings basically turn away from God. And rather than walking in relationship with God, we choose other things. In fact, if you want to think of it this way, the story and the condition of humanity is actually a problem of love. I want you to think about this with me, because if you really want to consider what are the things that we do most passionately in our lives, they're directly linked to what we love. The number one problem with humanity, you can say, is sin, but you can also flip that coin around and say it's actually love. It's disorganized, disorderly love. We love the wrong things. You can actually say with Adam and Eve, what happened with Adam and Eve was they loved the fruit of the tree more than they loved Yahweh, the one who created them. And this is the story of our lives, is that we have pursued other things other than God. The Bible's definition for that and word for that is we miss the mark. If you want to use a New Testament idea or ideology, it's the concept of sin, where we turn away from God because our hearts misguide us to love other things. But the story of the Bible behind our misguided loves is the story of a very directly guided love of God. God enters the story by coming to Abraham and says, I want to make you the father of many nations. And you're going to, through your life, you're going to be blessed, but your blessing that I'm going to pour upon you will be for the entire nations. All the nations of the earth will be blessed by you. So already in the very beginning of the storyline, we see a, a, a movement that goes beyond Abraham's family line, which is the family of Jewish people, so God's already working in sort of this trans-Israel mentality where God is, God's aim from the very beginning is to rescue all humanity. Again, we get to the New Testament. That's where we enter the story that we just read. We see this strange inclusion of these magi, right? These astrologers slash scientists slash non-Jews that really have no interplay whatsoever in the story, and yet God brings them into the story because God actually cares about all humanity. This is one of the most shocking things about the New Testament. See this kind of unfold throughout the book of Acts when the church begins to spread and grow is we begin to realize that God's aim is not just simply to create a sect of followers in the Middle East, but if you think about it this way, what in the world are you and I sitting here on a Sunday morning considering the claims of Jesus? You and I have been hijacked, lovingly brought in, swept up into the story of God. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that God did something for us on our behalf. What has motivated God to do all of this, we're told in the Bible, is, is love. But love, again, is one of those words, as the video points out, it's kind of a strange word, especially in our modern terminology. Uh, we use the word love to describe all sorts of things. 
like it said in the video, obviously I love pizza, I love mom. You don't want to hurt mom's feelings, so don't say the both, right? But the idea is we use the word love just to describe all sorts of things. But the idea in the Bible of love is about devotion, devoting oneself. And what we see is that God so loved the world. Again, it's not that God had warm, fuzzy feelings for you. It's that God devoted himself to you. And the big question then should be asked, how did God devote himself to you? Because again, I realize for some of us, again, I mentioned this a couple weeks back, Christmas for some of us is wonderful. We love it. We get all excited. We get festive, yada, yada, yada. But for others of us, it's, it's painful. It's not fun. It's actually pain. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge for us to even make our way through it because it's a reminder of things that we once had that we lost or painful relationships that we once enjoyed that are now fractured. It's a painful reminder of all sorts of things that are wrong and broken in this world. But the very heart of it is this God that says he loves us. And the big question is, is how has God demonstrated love to us? And that becomes the main issue that gets answered throughout the New Testament. That's what I want to finish on and just think about this. So think about this passage in the New Testament. John chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, most of you guys are familiar with it. If you don't know this passage, uh, you would probably be at least familiar with it. This is a great passage, by the way, to memorize if you already haven't. It just goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is the idea that God loves. God's not just throwing down emotions towards something. God is actually devoting himself to something that has sought to remove themselves from God. And then later on, the New Testament writer, a guy by the name of John, he writes this, John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And I think just to conclude, there's three things I think about this passage that kind of become really poignant to us in this season, in, a tried, uh, in an attempt to try to understand what God is up to in this idea of love. There's at least three things. Number one, I see God's love involving his faithfulness, that God is deeply faithful to those like you and I who have been deeply unfaithful. This is, this is what love is. I mean, honestly, if you think about what true love is, when we say, I love you, but it's devoid of any real firmness in terms of faithfulness, it's not genuine love. It may feel like love because, again, we're just simply resorting to an emotion, but true love is this idea of faithfulness. True love that resembles the love of God is faithfulness. Faithfulness really becomes powerful and profound when one pushes through in their faithfulness to someone, especially that has been unfaithful. Now, again, this raises a lot of other questions, secondary questions you can look at, but just for the focus of looking at this right now, I want to emphasize the idea of this is what God is up to, and this is how God's love begins to be identified, that he's faithful. He was faithful to fulfill promises that he said he would do. Beginning in Genesis chapter 3, God says that he will come into this world, that the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. Again, the serpent plays into the role of the Bible as the one who deceives, who brings havoc upon the world, who vandalizes God's good shalom, God's good earth. 
And God already begins to make this promise. I'm going to do something. I'm going to involve myself. I'm going to take care of that which has been broken. So we see the faithfulness of God. And we see this play into the story of what we just read here in the passage. The second thing I think is vulnerability. A true love has to be vulnerable. You cannot have love and at the same time or simultaneously have a hardened heart. The two are totally incompatible. And the question is, is why do we oftentimes form hard hearts? That's an, that's an obvious answer. I think one of the reasons for that is because we get hurt. And when we get hurt, we harden ourselves. We try to create calluses or walls around our hearts because we don't want to get hurt again. But when you think about what God has done by coming into this world, what's more vulnerable than a baby? I mean, this, this to me is what's amazing about the story. This is why, honestly, you can't make the story of the Bible up. It's too profound. It's too complex. It's too beautiful. It's too intricate. There's too many of these moving parts that if you somehow mess with or make modifications over here, it just the whole thing does not come together cohesively. But we have this God that says, I love creation so much. I love all earth, though at the same time, God recognizes, if you want to put it this way, there's a PR problem. That people think that God is constantly angry, he's upset, and that God's aims to crush humanity. Maybe some of you feel that way today. Maybe some of you think about your idea, your concept of God, and you think that God's response to you is he just either puts up with you or he's disgusted by you. But the story of the Bible is far more profound, far more beautiful, is that it's, that's not true, is that God actually loves you. Yes, he is troubled by our constant propensity and proclivities to turn away from him, sin. He's blown away by this, troubled by that, conflicted by that, upset by that. But at the end of the day, what God does is he loves us as those who bear his image. And he demonstrates his love to us in that he comes in this world as a child in the most formidable way of vulnerability. The last thing that I see is that God is full of compassion. The word compassion is this great word. It's a compound word, which means with suffering, compassion, with suffering. And this is exactly what compassion is, that God comes into the world. Now, think about the world as we know it. It's very broken. It's very messed up. It's very full of chaos, even right now. And that's not new, necessarily. It's not just simply become a more record. I mean, it's always been like this, always been messed up. There have been moments of even more profound turmoil throughout history. And yet what we see that Jesus comes into this world is that he comes into the midst of our chaos. This is amazing because when you think about it, think about it this way. If you were to walk into an area where you saw just major confusion and chaos and brokenness, most of us, we would just kind of gently pull away and not want to get engaged. Because we're like, ah, I don't, it's gonna, that looks like it's going to take a lot of my time. It might cost me a lot of money. I might get hurt. So we back away. But what God does is he steps right into the midst of a world of chaos and brokenness and destruction. And he takes it upon himself. And this is the ultimate form of compassion. And this is exactly what Paul says, or John says. Again, let me read it to you again. Just listen to it. Think about it. And I'm going to wrap it up just on this verse, meditating, think about it, considering this passage. First John chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Again, just listen to it. This is how God showed his love to us. He sent his one and only 
Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We see in God's love involving faithfulness, vulnerability, and compassion. My hope this morning and throughout the rest of the season that you would just be gripped by the beauty of this, the love of God, that it would change you, reshape you. It would pull you out of your cynicism. It would cause you to put down the walls that maybe you built up to keep God and maybe even others out. It would bring you to a place of recognizing that this God, who may feel profoundly distant or terrifying to you, is actually a God that loves you and has already taken action to step towards you to rescue you through Jesus entering in this world. So we're going to close, and right now what we're going to do to finish up, we're going to sing. We're also going to have a moment of lighting candles, which, which is what we've done over the past several years. It's a reminder of us of the fact that this season is a reminder that God has come into this world. Jesus is described as the light of the world. And we need light in this world, obviously. This world is filled with darkness. If you really want to be honest, that many of our lives are filled with darkness. And yet what we need more than anything is the light of God's life to come, to transform, to reshape, to reorient not only our lives, but our culture, our world, our friendships, our relationships, what we need, the Bible word for that is salvation. We need God to step in. And this is what we see through the coming of Jesus into this world, is that he has already begun to step in. That's what we celebrate this time of year, God stepping into our world. As one translation puts it, God moved into our neighborhood and made his home with us. This is what it looks like. This is what it means for Jesus to step into our world. 